Barbecue's our passion, and that's just what you'll get where the Kim Burns is a barbecuer. Tales from the pits. Hey, you've heard us talk about Zavala's barbecue distribution and their brick and mortar, but now the exciting products are coming to your doorstep. That's right. The Backyard Box is launching. It's a monthly subscription that you're going to get two featured products, rubs or sauces from some of the top barbecue joints across Texas. It's going to include some swag. There's going to be some offers from partners like Lone Star, 44 Farms, Nomad, Thermoworks, Tumbleweed Textiles, and Millscale. It's going to be such a great opportunity for you guys to get some of the best rubs and sauces. You're going to get access to videos with Joe Zavala featuring Pitmasters cooking in their backyard with the same rubs and sauces that you'll be receiving that month. That's pretty darn cool. Yeah, you know, you'll actually get to see it in action and, and what they're cooking and how they're cooking. So replicate the best and partner with the best and get some rubs and sauces from Zavala's Barbecue Distribution. That's bbqdistro.com slash tails. Level up your backyard game. All right. Well, howdy, everybody. We are Tales from the Pits, and we're here at Charleston Wine and Food Festival live. Yep. I am Brian. I am Andrew, and we're here in the Culinary Village at the Podcast Cafe, and we are joined today by Mr. Robert Moss. Robert Moss, the contributing barbecue editor for Southern Living, host and courier restaurant critic, and author of multiple books, including two that we're going to talk touch on today, is The Lost Southern Chefs, A History of Commercial Dining in the 19th Century South, um, and Southern Spirits, 400 Years of Drinking in the American South. And of course, we can't, we're a barbecue show, so we have to mention Barbecue, the History of an American Institution, which is in its second printing. Uh, an updated version came out a few years ago. Uh, welcome back to the show, Robert. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Andrew Brian. It's great to be back. So it's, let's, uh, let's kind of kick off with, with obviously, the, the first book that Andrew mentioned, uh, Lost Southern Chefs. What was the beginnings of the Charleston food scene? Yeah, and to the Lost Southern Chefs, I call it a history of commercial dining um, in the 19th century, not the history of restaurants. Because at the beginning of the, de uh, the century, in 1800, there was nothing called a restaurant in Charleston. Um, that is really an institution that developed throughout the 19th century. At the end of the 18th century in Charleston, you know, you could eat at home, obviously, but if you wanted to get a meal somewhere else, out in public, maybe you're a traveler in town visiting or you were a bachelor who didn't have a, you know, a home or kitchen of your own, you basically got two options. You could go to a tavern or you could go to a boarding house. And they're very similar in what they would, they would serve. In fact, they look very similar. The main difference was you know, the tavern would be a, a house of public accommodations. And it really looked like a house. Most of them were built as houses. They had a little bar in the corner in a cage because the proprietor would you know, serve liquor, uh, rum punches and things uh, <laughs> at, at night. And then when it's time to go to bed, he'd lock it all up. And then you had, uh, you know, most taverns, you could get a room there if you wanted to. Usually it was not a private room. You would uh, be in uh, a big chamber with a bunch of beds and sleep with all your fellow tavern guests, often in the same bed. Um, if you had a little money, you could get a private room, uh, but you know, most, mostly it was, it was a, a commonality. Boarding house is very similar, except that it was more you would board there for a period of time. Uh, the the proprietor, who generally was a, was, a, was a woman, often a widow, is a very common profession for widows to go into, uh, that would cook meals for you. Usually you'd get three meals a day, but you couldn't just walk in and order what you wanted. It was whatever they served that day. Tavern was the same way. You, know, if you, could, you could get a meal there, but it was whatever the... Uh, owner or the, or the cook decided that you know, they wanted to put on the table that day. And being a, a port city, obviously a lot of sailors frequented yep. these places as well, which probably was pretty rowdy. I would yeah, say. there was definitely different levels of taverns. And here in Charleston, the ones down along the waterfront were sort of notorious for, you know, there lots of rum drinking going on, lots of cavorting going on. The authorities were constantly trying to, you know, deal with the tavern problem and all the drunk sailors that would uh, come in and out of there. And, and one of the things that, you know, you hear the phrase, you know, ring the dinner bell, that was, that was literally what was done. Yeah, though it typically was a gong, <laughs> not, a, not a dinner bell. Um, yeah, dinner was served, and dinner in Charleston was usually served about two or three in the afternoon. That was the big meal of the day. There'd be a small supper at night. But uh, yeah, around two or three, whenever the, the, the set time, the doors would be locked to the dining room. The proprietor would ring a big gong, and you would Actually, you know, the guests would rush in and sit down at the table. That actually was a little bit later on in the, um, in the 19th century as hotels, et cetera, developed. 
uh, the, the gong be- and the dining rooms became bigger, so the gongs became louder. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but that was uh, you know, a, definitely a feature of dining was you know, a meal. When we serve it, whatever we want, and you, you, know, you'll, you, you just pay a fixed price for it. Hey. I bet a little bit of like Pavlov's dog where you know you could hear those bells. Yep. I, I can just, that town was probably very quiet until those <laughs> bells rang. It, it was. And British travelers in particular, British travelers love to come over in the early part of the 19th century and just sort of sneer at the, the bumpkins in America. And they always made a big deal about the ring of the, of the gong and how, how rapidly people would rush to the table and would bolt through their food. You know, you ever heard about, you know, Old expression like like eating at a boarding house because you're really eating as fast as you could before the uh, the rest of the your di- your guests there or your your fellow diners would would get the food. And, and what were on some of those early menus? Like what were some of the popular dishes or things you'd see served in those taverns or boarding houses? Um, well, we were actually sort of at, at that time there was a lot of. You know, if you're talking about the boarding houses and the, and the taverns, it was very basic meals. A lot of boiled meats and roasts and things like that. Um, one of the early uh, delicacies, though, in Charleston, and this was actually even before you know, served in taverns, well before there were there were anything, anything you called a restaurant, was uh, green turtle soup, and that was actually a great American delicacy in the 19th century and, and even in the 18th. They would catch these gigantic green sea turtles. Uh, using the Caribbean, bring them live on a ship into harbor, and whenever a tavern, you know, a tavern keeper would buy it, and then butcher the, and these are hundreds of pounds, so these giant turtles would butcher them on site, you know, cut off the fins, and the, they would actually cook the fins and serve them like steaks, and then they would pull all, you know, boil the turtle and make it, you know, a, a rich soup out of the meat and out of the broth, and with a lot of, um, you know, sherry and other. You know, aromatics in it, and um, for tavern keepers, it's actually sort of like their big draw. They would advertise in the paper, "We'll have a green turtle soup." You know, Saturday at noon, uh, and oftentimes it was free because the idea was that you know you come for the soup and you you pay for the drinks. From from presentation, would they would they keep the shell out? I, I, I don't think so. Um, they would sometimes display them in the window. Is that some of this is hard to know because there aren't great detailed descriptions of the meals and things like that um, from that period. Usually we find brief advertisement notices, but I do definitely, they, you would see advertisements that the shell would be displayed in the, the front window for people to come by is obviously a big draw to, if you had a huge turtle shell in the, in the window. And, and that's one of the things that, I mean, we're, we're, of course, sitting at a very large food festival as we speak yes. where people are pulling out their phones and documenting food. Right. That's, you know, that's, that was not an option back in those days. And so food history back in that time couldn't have been easy for you to research. What were some of your, you know, how did you go about putting this book together? It is, it is challenging. Some of the best, most detailed descriptions would come from travel logs, which is usually somebody from somewhere else, often from Britain. There were some uh, folks who come from other European countries. It usually would be written in French and German, but you can get translations. But they would essentially be like tourists traveling around all the colonies and writing up their experiences, which are great um, sources. The very first influencers. Yes. yes, yes. <laughs> but the thing was is they aren't locals, right? So they're coming in town for a few days and then sort of like, well, sort of like I do with barbecue, right? <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. Making the tour, writing it up. Um, so you have to be a little bit suspicious of some of their descriptions. They don't understand the, the culture necessarily. They tend to think Americans are a bunch of, of rubes and, and bumpkins um, and, and really run it, run it down, sometimes unfairly, but I'm sure sometimes fairly so because it was pretty Even pretty today? Yeah. <laughs> you know, from there, though, like restaurateurs, they, you know, local people didn't often describe the food. There were minimal cookbooks at the time. So, um, the, those, those came a little bit later. But really, newspaper ads uh, uh, and newspaper stories have been like the best source for this. I had to piece a lot of it together. Sometimes menus will be published uh, either in the, the newspaper or account of a banquet or something like that. Or there are some that there are not a lot of menus surviving, but there are some menus surviving. Your typical tavern or boarding house wouldn't have a menu because, you know, it was just whatever. We're serving pork roast today, and that's what you get. Um, but for banquets, you would have menus when there was something, something more formal. And, and I would imagine back then, I mean, you already kind of mentioned it, but um, lots of poultry as opposed to pork, that was probably much harder to obtain. Well, chicken's an interesting thing. Um, we think of chicken as being very cheap today. Uh, it, it's one, probably one of the cheapest meats, certainly cheaper than pork, beef, or veal. Um, but that wasn't the case before World War II. 
certainly not in the 19th century, chicken was, was rather expensive. Um, chickens were, you know, obviously, you, you know, they, people got eggs from chickens, so you had your laying hens. Um, but chickens would be, you know, this is before the development of what's called the broiler chicken, which is a, a chicken that will, be, will grow in just you know, a matter of months or weeks and be ready for slaughter. Back then, they didn't grow that fast, and they were much, they were much, much smaller. Uh, they've since been bred. So you, know, you usually would have a, a, a chicken was you know, more expensive than veal, was more expensive than beef. Um, it was a special occasion dish. So you think about fried chicken as a southern specialty today. In the 19th century, fried chicken was really special. You'd, you'd have to decide to kill one of your, your very valuable uh, chickens. Or, and you really could, it had to be a young chicken because if you kill a rooster that's three years old, it's going to be dry and stringy and tough. That's what you stew to make chicken pie or something like that. And chicken pie in the 19th century was a very, very elegant, dramatic dish, uh, usually made with like a two-inch puff pastry on top, a ton of butter, it was the kind of thing that it was actually along. It was alongside turkey uh, mm. and a big beef roast. A chicken pie was always on the Thanksgiving table in the 19th century because that's how, you know, prized uh, a chicken was. So yeah, they did eat chicken in the. You know, you'd see that, but it was much. It was very expensive. It wasn't really a meat that was raised for eating uh, so much compared to beef and, and pork and lamb uh, and goat and things like that. You know, one one thing that we you know still enjoy in great quantities today are oysters, um, and that was something that was popular even back then. And multiple varieties and multiple forms in terms of how they prepare it. I mean, I know there was some raw, but uh, t- talk a little bit about what oysters meant in the Charleston area and also the other port cities. Yeah, if you actually go uh, just drive north of here up the coast um, about twenty miles or so, you'll come to the seaweed uh, seaweed oyster middens or oyster ring. And these are actually you know, centuries-old mounds of oyster shells that were created by the, the Native Americans who lived in the area. And they ate so many shells and discarded them. They, they just formed these huge mounds, and they're still there today. Wow. Um, that's, so it, we, oysters were very widely eaten from, you know, for centuries uh, by the Native Americans. And then once uh, Europeans came uh, to, to the New World, they began eating oysters too. So um, oysters were always a very popular dish. And one of the things you see early on in Charleston taverns initially, and then later as they evolve, we'll talk a little bit about how they evolved into restaurants, but you'll, you'd see lots of things. You'd see beefsteaks and oysters as sort of like the headline uh, items. So if you're a Charleston gentleman, you're, you're, you're probably, you're, your favorite dinner is probably beefsteak with oysters that might be roasted or stewed or fried or cooked in any, any number of ways. Um, and that led really to one of the first commercial establishment dining establishments uh you know in america was the oyster house um also known as an oyster cellar or an oyster saloon um they were actually called oyster saloons right up until prohibition i think they should still call them oyster saloons yep because the bars weren't called bars they were called saloons a saloon had a bar in it but you went to the saloon of course the saloon got a bad rep during all the uh prohibition or all the temperance movement, yeah. and so when everyone came out of um, uh, out of out of uh, prohibition after repeal, all of a sudden you didn't have saloons anymore. You had bars. And you didn't have oyster saloons anymore. You had oyster bars. But we're, we're fast forwarding a little bit ahead. Um, the oyster house was really started in New York. It was a tradition there on the lower tip of Manhattan. Uh, there were often oyster cellars because they were in the basement of buildings there, um, and you could go down and get. Uh, oysters roasted, stewed, or fried. They often would put them in a pan over a wood fire and, and roast them up, which sounds absolutely delicious. Roast them with butter. D- about ten, you know, decade after, after they st- popped up in New York, they started appearing in Charleston. Around the 1820s, we started having uh, oyster houses popping up here. Very similar, except we don't really have any basements in Charleston because they'd be underwater. So they were <laughs> on the first floor. Um, Queen Street, if you go to and walk down uh, Queen Street in, from King Street over to uh, East Bay, you're walking right down what used to be the Oyster House Alley of Charleston. So the 1820s through the 1860s and beyond, there were at any one time at least a half dozen oyster houses in operation along there. The most, um, the, the two sort of long-lived, as most famous was the New York Oyster House, which was opened by a guy named David Truesdell, who came down from New York and opened a New York-style oyster house. And one block down the street, another guy opened a, play, uh, a uh, 
the, the Carolina Oyster House. <laughs> and uh, that really sort of started the, the Oyster House tradition. Uh, Damn Yankees even back then. Yeah, yeah. That's right. I mean, between the Oyster Houses and the taverns <laughs> and the boarding houses, I mean, yeah. as you describe this street of Oyster Houses, I mean, it, it, it must have been a bit of a party atmosphere here. It, kind of a, a lot of riches of food, at least. Yeah, it definitely was. In fact, there's a great article I turned up um, from a guy who was actually def- writing to defend the game of whist because whist was very controversial as corrupting the youth. They were getting together and they were playing this, this having whist parties and bad things could happen. And he actually defended whist as good for the youth. It was good to uh, get them together. And it, most important, it keeps them out of the oyster bars. <laughs> Which is, he, I can't remember what he called, like, you know, these, uh, the most uh, disagreeable purlieus of sin or something like that. He had a great expression for describing the oyster bar. So oyster bars were, or oyster houses, primarily all male places, lots of drinking going on, lots of, uh, lots of booze, uh, lots of porter, uh, went very well with oysters. Um, so not a place that respectable you know, young women would, would, would be seen. Weren't, weren't high society. So yeah. these oyster houses, were they, were they seasonal? You know, like oysters tend yeah, to Yeah, absolutely. Or? And back then it was very much like the old months with the R rule. Of course, there's no refrigeration before the Civil War in the South. Um, there's no mechanical ice production. They did start getting ice, house, ice houses that would be populated or filled with ice brought down in, in a ship from, cut from New England. But it's very expensive, so you really couldn't use it to keep oysters cold. So, yeah, the oyster bar houses would actually close up uh, for the summer. You know, as soon as uh, it got too hot to keep the oysters, it just usually be around the, the month without an R, about May. And then they'd reopen for business again in, you know, in the fall, in September, when uh, the water's cooled off. And then you know, they could keep the oysters fresh long enough to serve them. You talked about the, you know, the rowdy drinking that would go on, and, and that brings us to... One of your other books, the uh, you know Southern Spirits. What were what were they drinking in these oyster houses back then? Yeah, well, I sort of got into writing Southern Spirits. Is you know I love bourbon, so I don't want to disparage it. But it, there was I started writing the period where bourbon was all the rage, and everything it was bourbon this, bourbon that, bourbon everything. But the thing about bourbon is nobody in in South Carolina drank bourbon before Prohibition. Uh, nobody in the South who had any money drank whiskey before the Civil War. Um, whiskey was the cheap stuff. It was the sort of the country spirit that well, would compete. Well, I was going to say, like, how did they, they, there wasn't a lot of transportation of it. Really. Yeah, there wasn't transportation, and at that time, whiskey wasn't really barrel-aged. So if you've ever had white whiskey, you know, it's not a fine-sipping spirit. You have to treat it more like tequila than, than you would an aged spirit. So back then, if you had money, you, your, the favorite spirit would be brandy. Uh, ideally imported from Europe, and it, ideally from the cognac region of France, which was the most prized brandy of all, and, and now so much that cognac business became a generic name for, for, for spirits. Um, the cheap stuff was made in the Caribbean, it was rum, made with the leftovers from, from sugar production, or molasses was imported usually to New England and distilled in New England, and then the rum shipped south. And Caribbean rum was actually more expensive and more prized than New England rum, which was the rough, cheap stuff. The best rum, for whatever reason, was from the island of Jamaica. So old Jamaica rum was the most prized, most valuable. It was the good stuff. Um, so if you were in a, uh, a tavern, a punch house, uh, as they often call because they're drinking punch, you're probably drinking a punch or some other, or toddy or some other uh, concoction made with either brandy or with rum. And that was the trade route from uh, from Europe through the Caribbean and then up. Yeah, there. that's right. You know, ships would leave um, leave England with goods, carry them to the Caribbean, and it had a lot to do with uh, trade laws uh, and all the wars between Britain and Spain and France. Um, so the British colonies had to import things from other from either Britain or other British colonies. So the route would actually go through the Caribbean. They would, you know, bring manufactured goods, cloths, and things like that from England. Then load up the ships with rum, carry it to Charleston, and then in Charleston, that's when the rice economy is booming. They would load up the ships with rice and carry that to England, where rice was was growing in popularity and becoming a very valuable commodity. One of the things that that I learned reading the uh, the Lost Southern Chefs was how different dining was back then in terms of what was served. I mean, we all know the food of the South today that we eat, you know, tends to be 
very homey flavors, very comfort food based, but that wasn't the case in, in you know in the 19th century, in the early mid 19th century. It was much more of a like a, a European fine dining sort of banquet type meal. And and I would make the distinction: um, the food that's served in commercial establishments and in restaurants. Um, in the 19th century, there was a pretty big divide between home cooking, what people would make at home, and what you would go and get when you're eating, dining out in a, the restaurants that are evolving, um, or if you're at a, a very fancy banquet. Definitely very European-influenced. Um, you know, I don't, I'm trying to remember the date. It's somewhere probably, I think, in the 1840s is the first time there was a business called, a, with a name like Restaurant in Charleston. It was actually called the Restaurat which is a sort of variant of the French term. The, the, the term or, originated in Paris from these uh, re, restaurants, a, 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 a establishment that sold like these healing broths that were supposed to be restorative of, of, you know, for sick people, and they developed into more just general eating establishments. And then the term sort of hopped upon uh, to Boston and elsewhere. And Charleston first got a, a restaurant, some of the 1830s, 1840s, um, but mostly, the, you know, it, it was actually a coffee house. And again, the names, it's called a coffee house. You could get coffee there, but by and large, you're getting you know, brandy and rum and, and cocktails. And you also get meals there. Well, so you, well, that way you could tell your wife that you're going right. to the coffee house. I was, house. At, I was right, at, right. at the coffee house. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, and, and so anyhow, that, you know, that was the, um, yeah, yeah, the, the, the meals there were different than what you would get at home. And, and those, uh, there's a lot of French influence. In fact, starting in the 1820s, 1830s, but really picking up in 1848, there was an influx of French and European chefs. There was a wave of revolutions in, the 18, in 1848 that swept through Europe. All of a sudden, these uh, cooks who were serving all the nobility in the royal houses found themselves out of the job, often because their employer got, you know, got hanged. And so they decided it was probably good to hop on a boat and get out of town. A lot ended up in the United States, and they opened coffee houses and confectionery shops and things that eventually became restaurants. And so that if you look at sort of the pool of restaurateurs and, and chefs in the, in, in the South, but also in, in, in the northern cities as well, starting in 1840s, really the 1850s and 1860s, uh, uh, you know, the European cooks newly immigrated from France or from other parts of Europe were probably about a third of the restaurateurs in the, in, in the U.S. Taking it, taking it to barbecue for just a second, because we're a barbecue sort of show. Daniel Vaughn, I remember years ago, found like the earliest mention of barbecue in Texas that he could find. What's the earliest that you've been able to come across in terms of the Carolinas? Yeah, for a long time, um, for a long time, I, I, I would say that there was no Charleston barbecue tradition at all, because I really hadn't been able to find a scrap of information about barbecue in Charleston. Um, some of the earliest mentions in South Carolina were accounts of barbecues in the upstate of South Carolina, a, a, a couple hours west of here, up near, up in, up near the mountains, um, in what we call the upstate. That was populated by a lot of Scotch-Irish Presbyterians and others coming down from Virginia, uh, down along the Appalachians, and they're bringing barbecue with them. And so you see a lot of accounts of barbecues up there. There's a priceless account from a Charleston gentleman who visited one of these backwoods barbecues and was just appalled by the barbarity of it all and people eating, you know, eating with their hands and all these women out carving into you know, the, a, a whole cow with, with knives. Um, but I did actually find later, a, I believe it was before the revolution, a brief mention of barbecue in, a, in, a, in the, a, the Charleston newspaper. But it was, it was just sort of like saying that, um, you know, we, we should have a barbecue, you know, if the weather's nice, you know, we should, you know, something like, you know, enjoy a barbecue. And then there's one ad I found of somebody who uh, was running a shop on King Street who offered to cook barbecues for people if they wanted. And then that shop was out of business within a year. So there's little traces. I don't think it was unknown in Charleston, but it wasn't a big tradition. Whereas at that same period in Virginia, there were barbecues every weekend, these big outdoor uh, festivals, whatever, to get together, cook pigs, drink all day, play the fiddle and dance. And you know, it was just part of social life in Virginia in a way it was not in the Carolinas. Do you, do you think some of that uh, is, is kind of the aspect of, as, as we're sitting in Charleston, I'm looking out, I mean, like the availability of wood or, um, I mean, plenty of the houses are built with wood, so there had to be wood available here. But Virginia, just what I'm picturing is probably more wooded or 
Well, well, yeah, is maybe it's just that the settlement of people was just different. Or? I think it's I think it's a little more related to where the people came from, who settled uh, Virginia versus who settled the Carolinas. We tend to think of the colonists as just a, a bunch of English people that came over, but they came from different parts of England to different parts of of the colonies and i can't remember exactly where but i think the uh most of the virginia settlers came from like the southwest of england uh where they had a long tradition of roasting on open fires of feasting and having these big traditions um and so i think the barbecue is more natural fit for the the temperament um why it didn't take off in charleston i'm not sure but it's a very different culture and a very different society um, dominated by rice planters, I, I, I think you're right. The, the landscape is a little bit different here in, excuse me, here in Charleston. You don't have lots of woods with good barbecue grounds. That may have had a had an influence, but it just for whatever reason, it, very little barbecue in Charleston straight up into the 20th century. I mean, it's interesting, especially because sea, you know, obviously we're by by the water, so seafood is more abundant. What were some of the popular fish or seafood dishes other than, of course, oysters that you would see in commercial dining, or did you see much of that in commercial dining? Yeah, so back then, um, you didn't have boats that went out fishing in the deep sea. Um, you, Charleston had a mosquito fleet, is what it was called, because the boats were very tiny. Usually African-American men were the, the fishermen, and they would go a mile or two offshore. So they only would catch things that would be you know, in the rivers or, off, or offshore. Um, shrimp has been around for a long, long time. Um, very different back then than today. Today, you have these deep trawlers that go way offshore and, and, and uh, you know, drag the big nets. Back then, shrimp tend to be caught in the creeks uh, where they breed by, with hand nets, and they were very small, and you still will call them creek shrimp, which are tiny, tiny little, little shrimp. Um, in terms of what you would see in, uh, in, in restaurants, you know, a lot of... Uh, river fish, for sure. One of my sort of fascinations with writing a book became shad, which is this really interesting fish that lives in the ocean most of its life, but uh, will swim upstream to breed. Um, and back in the 19th century, they would go as far inland uh, until they hit the fall line where there were waterfalls and they couldn't go any further, which in Charleston would be all the way up to Columbia, which is way, way, you know, it's 100 miles inland from here. Um, that changed when they started damming the rivers, but shad was a very prized fish, and they would, uh, fishermen would string long nets across the rivers, and as the fish were swimming upstream, sort of like salmon fishers, the fishery, they would catch them usually in January, February, just as the waters were starting to warm a little bit, and the runs actually began earliest around the Savannah River, uh, which is between, Char uh, between Georgia and South Carolina. And then week by week, they'd start further and further up the coast. So the shad season would be early in the Carolinas, but in Washington or the Potomac, it would be a month or two later. And then you get up to New England you know, by, by May. Um, but shad was the most prized fish of the 19th century. All of the shad I'm familiar with are like bait fish, mm -hmm. but I mean, if they're if they're migrating, I would imagine they have to be bigger than that. But is it a fairly small? Yeah, fish? they're a pretty good sized fish. I mean, a shad will be a good I don't know, 18 inches, 12 to 18 inches. The thing about shad is they have a really complicated bone structure, and uh, like this sort of overlapping uh, rib cage that goes at crazy angles. And so, unlike a like a bass or something, you just sort of flay it down the spine. You got to really know what you're doing. There's a priceless video on, online that I found of an old timer at a fish market, I think down in Augusta, who is showing uh, how to how to uh, fillet or butterfly a shad. It's like, oh, it's no, it's it's no problem. It's really easy. And he proceeds to go for like 10 minutes, making eight slices here and pulling <laughs> this out and doing this and doing that. It's like there's there is no way I'd be able to you know do that. There's like 400 bones in a shad or something. Wow. Um, so that's one reason why people don't eat it a lot of, much very much these days people do like to catch it it's a sport fish they often catch them around dams but in the starting in the late 19th century we're really building into the first half of the 20th century as we started building damming all the rivers suddenly like in, in south carolina uh fish can the, the shad can no longer get to their old spawning grounds up which is up around columbia where the water, the, the, the ground is sandy and they, they had lots of places to lay eggs. Instead, they get stopped by the dams and be forced to lay their eggs on the rocky soil or the rocky bottoms of the river. And then most of the spawn would, uh, would get eaten by other predators. And it just wiped out the stocks. 
they're starting to come back now, but people have ceased eating it. Usually, you'll, commercial fishermen will catch shad here for the row, then they'll cut the row out of it and throw the rest of the fish away, which is a shame because if you can find some old-timer to deflate it for you, it's uh, absolutely delicious fish. So taking it away from Charleston for just a little bit, Talking about New Orleans, because that was one of the one of the really prominent areas of the South that, that were featured in the book. And what I was, you know, really interested to learn about is how different the cuisine of New Orleans was in the 19th century in terms of commercial dining versus what we see today in New Orleans. Yeah, it's it really surprised me too going into it because I'd been to New Orleans, I'd eat at Antoine's and Galatois and these great um, you know Creole restaurants that date back to the 19th century, or at least in theory, date back to the 19th century. And I sort of figured, okay, that's what New Orleans cuisine was like way back to the Civil War. Um, but the more I dug into it, I realized, and in, in certainly before the Civil War, and even really the 1870s, 1880s, cuisine in New Orleans restaurants, and New Orleans was well known for its restaurants, uh, you know, even in the 19th century, rivaling New York City. Um, but the, the cuisine there was very, very much like what you would find in Charleston, in Richmond, in Washington, D.C., in New York City. It was sort of this American fine dining, a blend of uh, European, particularly French cuisine, with American ingredients, you know, and very much much like that. Um, there's a the, the long-running, very rich um, home cooking tradition going way back to the colonial era in New Orleans. It was greatly influenced by Af- African Americans and, you know, the things we think of today like gumbo and uh, shrimp etouffee and all those those types of things. That really didn't enter the restaurants until really around the, the turn of the 20th century. Um, in the 19th century, you're much more likely to find turtle soup. You, you, you wouldn't find shad so much there because it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't swim in there, at least it doesn't swim in the, the Mississippi. The, the, the shad in Mississippi are, like you mentioned, a little uh, not edible fish. Uh, but pompano was the big fish from the Gulf because that was but prepared very much the same way. Um, catfish lots of hadn't come into play yet, I assume. I'm sorry. They, was catfish it? had not come into play No, yet. no one. Well, catfish is an interesting story, but no one really ate catfish gotcha. back then. Uh, catfish did not come until um, the late 19th century and actually became popular in a strange place in Philadelphia, uh, which wow. is getting us away from the, the South a little bit. But yeah, just a little bit away from New Orleans. <laughs> yep. And, you know, it makes a big deal about uh, fried chicken and waffles. There was a huge fried, fried catfish and waffles sort of fad in, uh, in, in, in and around Philadelphia on the Schuylkill River, uh, these fish houses along the river there uh, in the, I think it was 1880s or so. But no, you don't really see much of anybody eating catfish in a restaurant, at least. You know, people would always eat it at home and catch it, but uh, that, that came much later. You had mentioned earlier about ice houses. As those came on, I'm sure that like dramatically changed what restaurants could serve, because, and that was probably a big bang of difference. Yeah, the, the big, I think the biggest um, change you saw immediately when ice suddenly became available uh, in southern cities, and it, it would arrive on ships from Boston, uh, usually in the you know in the in the late spring. It was carved out of the lakes that were still frozen. Um, confectionery, so the ability to make all sorts of pastries, which is what pastry chefs were, were called back then. A lot of that that's that's you know the technique requires ice for chilling things. One of the first things everybody did when they got a load of ice arrived at the wharf, they would get, they would make ice creams. Uh, and other frozen treats. And if you think about it, if you're in Charleston in uh, you know, May and it's, it's 1830, uh, it's hot as hell because there's no air conditioning, nothing's, co- nothing's cold, so a big thing of ice cream would just be wonderful. And so up and down King Street were confectionery shops where you could go get fresh-made ice cream, and they call it ices, which might be fruit syrups and other things uh, made in ices, and all kinds of pastries. So that really started there. Uh, and then, of course, another thing that uh, ice was used for was cocktails. So up until the 1830s, 1840s, if you got a julep in Charleston, there were, it wasn't over crushed ice. There was no ice to put it over. It was like every other drink, like a toddy, uh, you know, like a, the original cocktail. It was, you know, it was sort of room temperature. Uh, a mixture. The punch bowls were as well. They were just un- Yeah, you warm. would not have a big block of ice floating in the punch bowl because you would have no place to get the block of ice. The punch would be uh, room temperature, and punch then was um, 
a communal drink. And I think I mentioned punch, punch houses. You could go there with all your buddies and get a, a, a bowl of punch, which would be probably about 95% uh, booze, you know, rum, and then sugar and some sort of citrus to, to cut it. And that, the whole idea was to mask the harsh taste of the spirit and then just, you know, you could just knock it down and get blotto. But it would not be cold. It would be, uh, it would be warm until at least the 1830s and 1840s when suddenly you could get iced punches, which were very, very popular uh, in the summertime. So yeah, one, of the, one of our favorite stories that we heard all year last year was, was when you told us about the, the famous bartenders or cocktail makers, yes. you know, Dabney and Cook. Tell us a little bit, the, the, one of the, my favorite stories in The Lost Southern Chess was the story of the Prince of Wales coming to Charles, or coming to America, yep. and, and being served his, his first julep. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about that story and, and kind of the conflicting history of it. Yeah, so the Prince of Wales, who was Queen Victoria's son at the time was, I don't know exactly, he was like somewhere in the range of 18 to 20 years old, but so he was sort of a, you know, doing what 18 and 20 year olds uh, like to do. Um, the, ju- the julep sort of, uh, the, well, julep's been around for a long time, it's sort of a, a combination, usually made with rum and brandy, no bourbon back before the Civil War, uh, but with sugar, with mint mashed in it, and then, and then your spirit. When ice came along, um, somebody had the great idea of crushing a bunch of ice, filling a goblet with it, and pouring a julep over it. And it was like a revelation to everybody because it was you know, it's that hot. You had this wonderful drink. And so they really developed in the resort, uh, summer resorts in the mountains of Virginia. Um, and then got brought to Richmond uh, during the rest of the year because everybody liked them so much, and they were, they were served there. So we, we were talking about Jim, uh, Jim Cook and John Dabney were two of the great julep makers of Richmond, Virginia. They uh, both worked for a time at the Ballard House, which is the fanciest uh, hotel in Richmond. It was actually the Ballard House and the Exchange Hotel owned by the same guy named Ballard and connected by like this little walkway over the street right in downtown uh, Richmond. So when the Prince of Wales, I think his, his, his mom, Queen Victoria, was happy to put him on a ship and send him away from the palace for, the, you know, for a few months because he sounded like he was a handful. But he and his entire entourage, there's a whole bunch of princes and earls and dukes, uh, arrived in America. All the cities wanted to, you know, were trying to get him to come visit. Richmond um, got, landed the honor. I think that was the only southern city that the... Uh, the, the prince visited, but when he arrived, they they took rooms uh, at the Ballard House and the Exchange Hotel. I think they basically took over the entire Exchange Hotel side of it. Um, but at some point, they, uh, they they had heard about the mint julep and they needed to try a julep, so they uh, called down to the bar. And it's not exactly clear who brought up the julep. Um, whoever made it, it was supposedly given a $25 gold coin. Uh, as a tip or reward by the prince who was so f- taken with it. And these juleps were not like a little, you know, silver julep cup like we might think of today. They were served in these giant chalices filled with ice, uh, basically a big dome of ice over the top. They would array fruit all over the ice and stick it on the side of the chalice. And it was giant, so it was a multi-person drink. They would put all these straws down through the ice, and you could you know, put it on the table, and four people could drink out of the, the straws, which you still have some novelty drinks like that and tiki bars and things right, like that. Right, right. Yeah. So it was yeah, the, the original. Fish bowls is what I'm That's thinking. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It was the fish bowl of the, of the, of the 19th century. Um, but the Prince of Wales had one set up, and he and all the dukes and earls and everybody sipped out of it and liked it so much that they had one sent up the next morning uh, before they went out to tour Richmond. And either Jim Cook or John Dabney made it for them. I sort of suspect they may have both delivered it because would you let the other guy, you know, oh, right, yeah, you serve the prince? Credit for yeah, it, sure, yeah. Because um, yeah. both of them, you know, later in life, their families would say that John Dabney served the Prince of Wales the julep, and Jim Cook's family would say he served the Prince of Wales. So maybe they both did. Yeah. Actually, that's not my theory. I think I think it was David Wondrich's conclusion we were on a panel together talking about juleps and then that was his conclusion i say yeah that that sounds probably as, as likely as anything else so, so yes the julep not from kentucky not made with bourbon no yes. you know contrary to popular belief yeah that actually came much later um if you look at uh jerry thomas's sort of seminal bar bar uh, bartender's guide called how to mix drinks which was published i think in 1862 
the first really bartender's manual. He has a whole section on juleps because julep was a category of drink. The first ones you know, have, um, I think, brandy in the, in the first ones. He says uh, peach brandy was very prized, which was actually made from real peaches, not peach-flavored um, grape brandy. Uh, a, lot, a lot of it made, made domestically. And then way down at the bottom is a whiskey julep because that was, uh, well, if you had to make it with that, you could. But whiskey at that point was still pretty harsh stuff. It wasn't until later that they're aging it, and Kentucky really became famous. Um, best I can tell, they started, they were serving juleps in Kentucky like everywhere by that point, but they weren't known as Kentucky. It really wasn't until after Prohibition that uh, Churchill Downs made the julep their sort of official drink of the Kentucky Derby that it really took on a strong association. They were ser serving juleps with made with bourbon at the Kentucky Derby before Prohibition, but it wasn't a very famous, you know, it wasn't the signature drink. It was just served alongside everything else. And I'd read that one of the one of the things that helped make it famous in Kentucky were the glasses that it was served yep, in. Yep, absolutely. The, the concessionaire for the Kentucky Derby. Um, I think it was originally glasses. There was it, they had they went back and forth between glasses and I think like metal cups or something because people were breaking. But they came up with the idea of doing a souvenir glass um, that you could get your julep in, and so then that really fueled the popularity and getting the glass from the Kentucky Derby became a became a huge thing. You know, in the late eight, late late 1930s, and uh, I think the julep is associated with, K with Kentucky ever, ever since. But there's a great distillery here in town, if you can get there while you're, you're here. Actually, it's, it's the Hospitality Center, so you've probably already been there, called Highwire Distilling. Um, they make uh, now a peach brandy made with real South Carolina peaches. Um, only distillery in South Carolina that I know of that is making it at any sizable quantity. Uh, unfortunately, it's still not they're in their regular rotation. It's sort of a, they, they, they make it once a year and bottle it up, and when it's gone, it's gone. But boy, a mint julep made with peach, real peach brandy is really fantastic. So you, you got to give it a shot if you can if you can get a bottle. Give yeah. it a shot. Literally yeah, we, we, we definitely have to try to get that one before we get out of here yeah. for sure. Um, there's there's another drink that also transitioned its ingredients over time um, down in New Orleans, the Sazerac at Sazerac House. Yeah, the Sazerac. Um, Sazerac is one of the most complicated stories and. Um, David, David Wondrich, who's a great cocktail historian, um, uh, is dug into it. He's, he's reached the same conclusion as me, which is that it's, it's almost impossible to tell the whole story. But the cocktail originally was not just a term for a mixed drink. It was a, um, a specific thing, very related to the julep. So you had a toddy. So back in the 19th century, no ice. You want to make a, you know, you had this very harsh... Your domestic rum or, or maybe even brandy or peach brandy. You want to make it palatable. What, what can you do? We have to cut it with something. Um, one of the things you could do is you could crush up sugar because back then sugar sort of came in these big loaves and you could carve off a piece and crush it with a little bit of water and make a syrup and then mix your, your spirit into it. And that was a toddy. Um, it could be hot, made with hot water, which made the sugar melt more. It could be cold, which really would be room temperature water. Um, a little harder to melt the sugar, but you know, it goes down a little easier, I think, when it's hot outside. Um, but if you want to cut it more, you could add um, some mint and crush the mint in with the sugar, infuse it with that minty flavor. That was a julep. Or you could take bitters, which is like we think of today, like your pecho bitters um, or Ang Angostura bitters, which is much, most people think of. They were these sort of originally medicines. They're these herbal remedies that were made with all these herbs steeped in alcohol. But if you put a few dashes of bitters. There's a very particular, very popular brand of bitters. Actually, one of the brand is more of a style of bitter called Stoughton's Bitters, and lots of different people would make it. But that was originally, they, you shake a little bit in there, mm. and that was a drink called cocktail. And so originally, you had a, a cocktail. Um, you could make cocktail with just about anything, right? You could be whatever spirit you wanted to, to use in it. You could make a whiskey cocktail, which would be you know, made with whiskey. Well, in New Orleans, um, there was a pharmacist named uh, Ambed I can't remember his old name. Antoine Ambedet Pechot, I think. Pechot, I think but Pechot, yeah. Pechot's bitters, if you're familiar with the bright red, very unique uh, color bitters, one of the, the only ones that were that color. Um, so he, that became a very popular brand of bitters in New Orleans, particularly after the Civil War. And then there was a, you know, we mentioned cognac before. There was a brand of cognac called Sazerac, um, and the full name was something like Sazerac de Forge, 
but it was an imported French cognac that was super popular in New Orleans around the 1850s, 1860s. And um, somewhere along the way, it's maybe people started making a cocktail with Sazerac uh, cognac and calling it a Sazerac cocktail because it would be made with that. Um, it was popular. There were several Sazerac houses in New Orleans um, that were sort of named after the, the cognac. And so maybe it was a cocktail made at the Sazerac uh, coffee house. But certainly um, there's a phylloxera e epidemic broke out in the cognac region of France in the 1870s, wiped out the grape fields, wiped out the cognac industry uh, in France. And what happened at the same time is all these sort of sharp dealers had cheap brandy from somewhere else that they would stamp cognac on the barrel and pass off as cognac. So I got a really bad name in the market even after the, uh, the, the region came back. So cognac fell totally out of favor in the United States in the 1870s. What was super popular and replaced it was whiskey, which was getting better and better. Uh, barrel age, aging had been introduced. The distilleries were getting bigger. They were starting to use column stills. The, um, we, we have a lot of romance about the small little still up in the hill, but the, by all accounts, the whiskey they made was really harsh. So you were getting better and better whiskey, and then people started making their, uh, their cocktails with that, including the Sazerac cocktail, which would be uh, rye whiskey, uh, Peychaud's bitters, and rinse the glass with a little uh, absinthe, which was also super popular in uh, New Orleans uh, in the late 19th century. Got replaced later by Herb Saint when uh, absinthe was banned. But now that you can sell absinthe in the US again, a lot of uh, bartenders in New Orleans are using absinthe rents for their, their Sazeracs. And some people say that the, um, the, the transport of the whiskey on the boats down to New Orleans, that, that, oh, that, that river voyage also helped the aging because it would kind of swish around in the barrels as it came down. Yeah, it, it certainly did. Um, I think long before that, um, long voyages were known to improve rum and they're also known to improve Madeira wine which is wine from the island of Madeira which is just off the coast of Africa it was a, a, Portu a Portuguese island where they made uh, a, a wine that became very popular in the south and they uh, would put it in these big barrels they called pipes uh, and fortify it with brandy so which would help it sort of stand up to the voyage and what they actually found was in the hot hold of the ship as it went up and down in the seas, it, it actually mellowed and improved. We know now that a lot of times, you know, it's the barrel or it's getting pulled into the wood and out of the wood. So they sort of knew that with, with wine and um, customers in Charleston and elsewhere started saying, you know, please ship it in, uh, in, in these, these barrels and please put brandy in it before you do. And then they actually started sending these barrels on long voyages all around the world. There was a thing called uh, Three Times Around the Horn, which was a barrel or a pipe of Madeira wine that was put on a ship, sent around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa all the way to Asia and then back around and back around. Somehow they, it came around the Cape of Good Hope three times, at which point it was that, really That's pricey. marketing like you see today. And, uh, right. And that's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so that was, that was well known. There's a lot of myths about how barrel aging came to be where some cheapskate was, you know, had, was trying to put whiskey in a barrel that used to hold fish. And he, he, so he tried to burn out the smell and discovered that, wow, it really improves the flavor. But no, they knew um, th that charring a barrel improved. It was used to purify water that was being shipped on ships. Um, and they knew that bouncing it up and down on a voyage actually improved things. So, yeah, it was, um, it was practical to send the whiskey down the Ohio to the Mississippi all the way to New Orleans and put it on ships. You know, there was a great way to send it. But the, the whiskey would definitely be better by the time it arrived uh, than when it left. Well, switching gears to barbecue again for a second, because one of the things we love, one of the reasons we love talking with Robert is you've got such a varied career and varied interests. And, of course, part of your, one of your many roles is the contributing barbecue editor, mm -hmm. Southern Living. You did get to make another top 50 list. We won't go through all the minutia of that again. But once again, Scott's Barbecue, still your favorite place. What makes Scott's Barbecue in Hemingway the, the quintessential barbecue place for you? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Well, what, what makes it for me is that, I think, I mean, I can't remember if we talked about this on last year's episode, but when I go to Scott's, you know, it's really a takeout place. I think there's a, two tables in the back if you, wanna, if you really want to eat there, but nobody does, you know, everybody's getting a takeaway. And 
it's about a little over an hour from my house, so I'll swing through there. It's, it's on the way um, I go to get to the Raleigh-Durham area, so I go through there every now and again, and I'll just swing through, get maybe two pounds, and it comes in the white styrofoam box, and they usually give like a little, it's like those kind of little jugs they put milk in at schools, and they'll fill it with that super hot, spicy sauce. <laughs> and I'll put it in the front seat, and I'll just eat a little bite, and say, I'll, I'll, I'm going to eat when I get home, and then I'll eat another little bite, and I eat another little bite, and I just can't stop eating them. And it's something about the, the wood cooking and the specific way they do it over the coals. Um, and then I really think the key is the, the way they mop the pigs um, with the, that very spicy sauce when they, you know, they cook skin side uh, up, you know, the, the meat down for all night long. Like Sam Jones and, his, and others like up at, up at eight, and they flip theirs midway through the night. Um, so they can go home and, and rest. At <laughs> Scott's, they still flip them, as far as I know, you know, in the morning, right before they're, and then they'll, fin- they'll take the big mop and start mopping that sauce. And if you really see it, they, and they'll put a little more coals up under it, so it's sort of you know, heating. You'll see little bubbles of that sauce simmering around the edges. And it's like the, the, the meat's almost you know, simmering and confeeing and can feed in that, in that cavity. It makes it just an un- unbelievable texture and you get that great wood smoke because they could shut down their own trees and they have a giant burn barrel and they use a lot of real wood, uh, which, you know, direct heat cooking. And the, the first time I think we went, we also saw a lot of tree stumps. Yep. Yeah. And, and you don't see that at most, most barbecue joints. They're using the smaller splits. Yeah, and I mean, I, I assume they still do it today, certainly when Rodney Scott was still up there. If you had a tree that needed to be taken down in the Hemingway area, you call them up, they'll come out. If it was an oak tree or pecan or hickory they would come to your house and chop it down and take it away for you and then something else you really can't do in the city which is make huge piles of wood out back and let them dry and age so that they're um you know it's ready to go on the pit um so i think that that just makes a difference and just a sheer amount of wood if you see the big burn barrels they have they're not a 55 gallon drum they're like industrial piping they're 15 feet tall and the, the flame is just roaring in there so something about that flavor, as soon as you bite it, it's inimitable. Nobody else can quite get it that way. Rodney Scott's restaurants in Charleston, Birmingham, is close, but they have to cook a little bit differently in the city. They're using metal pits. A little bit, I think it's a little bit different to it. Something about being able to do it out in the country in Hemingway makes it, makes it special. Well, and that, the, the smokehouse there is, is really unique. So it, kind of in a, in a strange connection to bourbon, there's a lot of talk about the rickhouses and the wood rickhouses. And where Blanton's is made is the metal, shed, metal shielded brick, brick house, and supposedly that's different. Um, in, in Scott's, it's a Quonset hut that mm-hmm. has them. It's, it's an arched metal shed, basically, and that's their entire smoke room. Yeah, and that's actually relatively new. Um, the, the, the cookhouse that was there before burned down. Um, a pig went up, and it took the whole thing down. And, so, and that was back when Rodney was still, was, was still up there uh, cooking. And they actually got an architect from here in, in Charleston uh, to help design it. And they designed it, that Quonset hut, to specifically be metal. So that if they had a pig go up again, it's not going to take the whole thing down. It was much more of a, I think it was wood with like screen sides before, uh, before they, they had to rebuild it from the ground up. Fortunately, they took down the pit house, but it didn't burn down the, uh, the, the main building. So the country store is still there. Yeah, we were fortunate last uh yeah, our last trip to, to Charleston last year, we, we did get to go back to Scott's again in Hemingway. Same experiences we had the previous time. I mean, it's just, it's such a, it's one of those magical places in barbecue that, you know, there's only a few of them around that, that really give you that feel. We try to, because everyone from Texas always asks us about different hog places because they, you know, they may not have been. We always liken Skylight Inn to kind of a Louis Miller of hog, and we always liken Scott's to more of a snows of hog. Like you drive out to that place in the country, you know, and, and it's and it's the way it's been for many many years, and it's just we love it. Unadulterated. Yeah, it is. It just, it, it's it, still it is that pure, just like it was. Maybe a different different smokehouse, but it, that experience hasn't yeah. changed. And the pits inside are are the same. They're the same cinder block pits. They have to replace them every now and again, but it's the exact same design. It's just made with cinder blocks, rebar through the the middle. They shovel coals up underneath it, put, you know, corrugated steel on top. Just not like a pit. It's not smoking. It's it's just to keep the, the heat in. But it's really the direct heat from the coals coming up. And the same thing with Skylight, same, same idea. Um, 
same technique, same same pits they've been using since you know early. Well, Scott since the 1970s, and Skylight Inn since you know around the turn of the, of the 20th century. So, if you didn't have enough things on your plate, you you took on another role last year. Um, I believe it was last year. The uh, uh, it was almost exactly a year ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you took on the role as the restaurant critic for the Post and Courier. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that's been, because it's you know obviously a, a different role than being a barbecue editor or being yep. a historian. Yeah, it's, it's not my first gig as a, a restaurant critic. I actually um, was the restaurant critic for the Charleston City Paper, which is the alt-weekly here in town for, for many years, um, and really before I really started writing for Southern Living, and, and that started occupying my time. Um, but it is, it's very different than the, the barbecue writing. You know, it's much more formal. Obviously, the restaurants are... You know, we try to hit a, a range, but we're hitting a lot of fine din- dining restaurants here in, in Charleston. Um, so, you know, the, the Post and Courier stopped, like a lot of newspapers, stopped reviewing restaurants in in the wake of the pandemic. And so after about two years, they thought it was time to bring it back. And so they asked me to come on board to, to do that. So it's been really great. The amazing thing with Charleston, and it's this way in, in some cities and not in others, but Charleston's dining scene it's just been transformed in the last two years. It's, it's almost, I have this list of restaurants to go visit, and we're hitting mostly new places that have opened since the pandemic, and many of which have just opened in the past year. And the whole dining scene is just changing and transforming. And of course, I had a year or two where you know, I wasn't dining out very often, so it's been exciting to get back out there and, and see how the, 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 the city is changing and the dining scene's evolving here and the, you know, as we get to the 2020s. What are what are some of the restaurants that, that have excited you since you've taken on this role? What are some of the ones that really stood out? For you? Well, the one that just came out yesterday is a it was a, a very very positive review of uh, one of my favorite new places, which is called Vern's, uh, which is uh, downtown. You know, Charleston used to have its fine dining sort of restaurant row was East Bay Street, um, which is where all the restaurants to sort of you know develop the new Southern cuisine and the. 1990s, early 2000s were located along that. In the 2010s, the dining machine shifted to Upper King Street, which used to be a retail district, uh, and a lot of the stores had closed down and got boarded up. It was sort of dead, you know, it, it, in the early 2000s, you know, like lots of boarded up windows, et cetera. And then one by one, each block started coming back, and lots of restaurants were, were being put there. Um, so that was sort of the hub of the fine dining scene. But Charleston's gotten very famous for its food scene. The Wine and Food Festival here is actually very largely uh, responsible for that. The whole mission of the Wine and, food, uh, Wine and Food Festival when it was founded was to shine a light on the Charleston restaurant scene and bring it to national attention. And boy, did it work. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was like most yeah. attracted delight. And yes. Just, yeah. <laughs> and you know, that, so that really made it a dining destination. And then that drew more tourists and that drew people to build hotels and that drew more tourists who maybe not be as interested in coming to Charleston for the dining as, as much for everything else. And so they've got all these, you know, travel and leisure, best cities awards and stuff, which it's, you know, it's great, except um, it, the one problem is you have hotels pop up in every corner downtown, the restaurant, the rent's going up and up and up on East Bay Street and, uh, and King Street. So increasingly, uh, the new restaurants are opening up out in the neighborhoods, and in, and Vern's is one of them. It's it's on Bogard Street, which is just a couple blocks uh, off of King Street, but it's down in what used to was still was and still is a residential neighborhood. Uh, but all those neighborhoods back a hundred years ago had little corner grocery stores. Uh, back before people had cars, where you could walk and get your groceries, a lot of them got boarded up. You know, once the supermarkets came after World War II. Now they're being renovated and turned back into and turned into restaurants. Not back into restaurants; they were groceries. And Vern's is one of them. It's in a, a corner grocery store, so it's a smaller format, uh, old building, beautiful wood floors. They've remodeled it nicely, but it's just a different type of dining. It's a little more casual um, than the old white tablecloth places that we had on East Bay Street 20, 20 years ago. Um, not as elaborate in terms of sauces and, and all that. Uh, Dan O'Hines is a chef there, and he was actually the chef de cuisine at McCrady's restaurant, which was one of the defining restaurants of the Charleston boom. It was where Sean Brock first came to Charleston and sort of made a name for himself, and he was Sean Brock's chef de cuisine. So he was there for many years, and went out to California for a little while, cooked with uh, the guys at Animal, uh, Vinny Dodolo and, and John Shook, I think, they're, they're, or Dotolo and yeah. Shook. John Shook. Uh, they came back east 
uh, and they've opened a restaurant this summer, and it's absolutely fantastic. Um, so it's a lot simpler and a little more stripped down than the, the former style of fine dining. But, um, you know, it, it's simplicity and ingredients, really making the best use of, of Char Charleston's dining. So uh, one of my favorite new places I've been to. That's uh, Fox Brothers were actually just telling us we need to go there. At the, like two days ago, we were yeah. getting messages from them. Like, they do a Delmonico steak. You've got to get to them. Well, yeah, I get a great <laughs> review, but I don't think I'm going to... Do, they were already, you couldn't get a table there. So <laughs> they put themselves on the map. I, I don't think I have that much influence. All right. So, so we'll give you a little rapid fire of some of your favorite items around Charleston. If, if someone's coming to the city, first time uh, they've been. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in the other direction first, though. Go. Guilty pleasure in Charleston. Oh, man. I don't know. I tend not to be guilty about them. You know, I, I, like, <laughs> uh, I like to eat... Um, you know, it's not all fine dining. Obviously, I love barbecue. Um, it's, I'm not guilty about it at all, but one of uh, you know, the pleasures is to go to this great place called uh, the Codfather, which makes just old school English fish and chips. Uh, the guy's actually English. His, I think his dad ran a, fish, a, a, a chippy in, in England. Um, and it's just, it's just really good. Low-key, very simple restaurant and you know there's nothing carolina about it nothing barbecue about it but uh they have the best tartar sauce in mm. uh, i've ever had and i'm not a big fan of tartar sauce in general but i will eat just about anything dunked in, in their tartar sauce and the fish is you know just wonderful cod and great chips so that not a guilty pleasure but it's a definitely low-key pleasure man. I, i've been hankering for fish and chips for like a month now i gotta find <laughs> one in houston there's there is a chippery it's like a, it's a guy from England, supposedly, that opened up. A, yeah. It's called, like, The Chipperia. Maybe I need to go there. What's your, what are some of your go-to places for a good hamburger? Good burger. Believe it or not, um, one of the best burgers... Actually, these days, that's probably not so hard to believe. Uh, the, the Bessinger barbecue joints, either Melvin's or Bessinger's. On second, second time we've heard that yeah. today. Yeah, yeah, yeah actually. And I'm a big fan of the old-school cheeseburger, and this is an old-school cheeseburger. And it actually reflects the heritage, because the piggy parks used to be drive-ins. And if, if you go to them now, you'll see on the walls the pictures of them as drive-in restaurants back in the you know, 50s, 60s, and early 70s. And, you know, most barbecue restaurants uh, or a lot of barbecue restaurants in the South were drive-ins. They, they have burgers, they have hot dogs, and then they have barbecue. And, you know, barbecue is often the headliner. But um, you, you can still get that style of sort of, you know, it's not too thick. You know, it's griddled. It's got the nice broad bun. Um, so that's, that's one of my favorite burgers. Oysters? There's so many to choose from. <laughs> yeah, that's that's hard to say. Um, there's so many good oysters now, and it's like the thing about oysters is, it's not a lot you do with them, right? You shuck them, you maybe you have a good, you know, cocktail sauce or mignonette, but but the oyster Did themselves. Anyone doing a creative oyster dish that stood out to you? Yeah, that's what I was trying to think of of through through some of that. I really do like a good oyster stew, which mm. uh, can be delicious if made right. I'm trying to think of where there's so many places that do it. Um, there is uh, Leon's fried fried chicken and oysters. We were there uh, yesterday. They do a really great <laughs> grilled oysters. It's New Orleans style. They bartered it from New Orleans, but they do it really well. Okay. And so that that would say you know non raw. That's one that I, I definitely adore. So I, I could eat a whole lot of those. All right. How about dessert? Hmm. Just best desserts in Charleston. Yeah. You know, it's a little tough. Um, Parker Milner and I, uh, Parker's the uh, food editor of the Post and Courier, uh, have been talking a lot about pastry chefs, and we're, we're, we're going to do a, a podcast, I think, with some pastry chefs and try to talk about that. The, the pastry world has really changed. Very few fine dining restaurants now have pastry sh programs anymore or on, on staff. So the desserts tend to be uh, at fine dining restaurants. They're fine, but they're nothing that, you know, blows you away like they would have 15 years ago when you had these wizards, you know, spinning sugar lattices and doing all kinds of, of crazy things. Um, one of my favorites, though, I, I, this, this one comes to mind, is there are these um, Dolce de Leche donuts at the Red Drum in Mount Pleasant, which has been there for a long while. It's actually a sort of a Texas meets low country fusion. The, the Ben Berryhill, the chef, was originally in, uh, working, came from Texas, um, does great quail and stuff like that. But these are like these donuts that are fried fresh, and they have this dolce de leche uh, sauce that you dip them in. And 
Maybe it's a guilty pleasure. I could eat a, a zillion of those. Yeah, apparently, some people are big fans of it. <laughs> All right. Um, so, so, you know, there's one other thing to talk about, too, as well. I mean, we're on a podcast, but you're, you're starting a podcast. So, tell yeah, us about so, um, you know, now that we're a year in with Posting Courier, I'm doing a few more things. I'm writing a, a, a weekly, or sorry, a monthly column for their subscribers only newsletter. So, uh, if you're in Charleston and are interested, you know, take, take a look for the Charleston menu, as it's called. Uh, and then we're also launching a podcast, actually, here at, at Charleston Wine and Food, um, that will, I think, it tucks up under, they have a Understand SC podcast series, which is all about various topics in South Carolina. And so we'll be adding a monthly look at the food scene uh, in South Carolina, but particularly in, in, in Charleston. So that'd be fun to get off the ground, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited about having that. We'll have some good guests come on anytime someone's visiting. We'll try to grab them and, and then talk, you know, talk with them, but also talk about just the the latest news on the Charleston culinary scene. I mean, it would be great, great fodder for people that are coming to Charleston to make sure they listen to the most recent episodes before they show up. Oh, of course, yeah. And, and of course, the locals should be subscribing to it to, to stay in on the latest what's going on in the Charleston food scene. You keep giving yourselves more things to do. I know. Well, I just keep <laughs> more things to eat. That's the, that's the key. But, no, thanks again for another really fun conversation. Our episode last year is... Probably the favorite one we've done. I, I, I went out and bought uh, bought mint juleps. So <laughs> right after the episode. Um, but but it's it's always a pleasure to talk food history, barbecue history with you. Thanks again. Thank you to Charleston Wine and Food for having us out here in the podcast cafe at the Culinary Village, and we will talk with you next time. All right. Thanks, guys.